it is time for our scripture reading. Uh, so we're going to be reading Psalm 77. Kim Silbor is going to come and read. Uh, and in honor of God's word, I invite you to stand. Listen as I read. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. And so uh, we're, we're in a series um, called the Psalms of the People. And part of what we did with this series was uh, over the course of a little window of time, we uh, invited you to submit psalms that have impacted you, that have uh, uh, played a part in uh, comforting you, uh, leaving you confused, uh, leaving you frustrated, um, what, the, whole, the whole spectrum. And, and we just said, if you, if you have a psalm that's, that's uh, ministered to you, we'd love to, love to hear about that. And we can't pick them all, but we're going to pick a handful of them and, 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 and preach on them. Um, and so far, we've uh, preached on Psalm 29, Psalm 33, Psalm 40, uh, and today it's Psalm 77. And so let's, uh, if you haven't turned in your Bibles, go ahead and turn there and let's, uh, let's walk through these, these 20 verses together. Uh, first point uh, is the, the, the problems we face. If you see verse 2, the psalmist says, In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. Uh, verses 1 and verses 2, it, it, it communicates this reality of the psalmist being in some level of, of tension or hardship. And if you were here last week, you know, you know, maybe you remember that Psalm 40 started off similar. Started off with the psalmist crying out, shouting out uh, this, this, this uh, passion to have God's attention. Um, and there's a lot of other psalms that, that start this way. It's not uncommon for the psalmist to say, I'm in a bad spot and I am trying to get the attention of the God of heaven. A lot of strain, 
a lot of struggle, a lot of difficulty uh, we find in the pages uh, in, the, in, the, in the various collection of psalms. L- listen to verses 2 through 4. So verse 1, he says, cry aloud, I, uh, aloud to God who will hear, and he will hear me. Verse 2, in the, night, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Uh, the, the psalmist is expressing some pretty significant angst. Uh, maybe another way to say this would be that he's wringing his hands all night long. He's refusing comfort. He's losing sleep. He's frustrated with God. He doesn't want to talk to anybody. Have you been there? Uh, this psalm, uh, Psalm 77, was submitted by someone here at Sojourn um, who, just as they were having to navigate their own journey with cancer, uh, and as scary and as fearful as that is, um, getting ready to go through their treatments and all of those things, they get slammed from multiple other directions with other hardships. Uh, dear friends who uh, uh, suddenly lost a loved one, a severe health diagnosis with another member of their family. And so not only are they dealing with all the fears of cancer, but then there's these other challenges that are, that are bubbling up at the exact same time. And as they were trying to figure out how to find their footing in a situation like that, Psalm 77 was one of the places that, that they, could, they found that they could relate. They could, they could relate in, the, in a very scary season of their life. All those fears, all those challenges, all at once. You might find yourself relating to these first verses as well. Feeling like you wring your hands all night, that your eyelids won't close that you actually don't want anyone to comfort you, that you're you're not getting the right amount of sleep, that you're actually a little frustrated with the God of heaven. Maybe you can can relate to that that boat. Or maybe you're more likely to say, yeah, but you know, the the psalmist is so dramatic. Don't you know about artists? You know, they, they always do this. They always overstate things. They always make things seem so, so terrible. Um, he really should stop wallowing, wallowing in self-pity, wallowing in the negative. You know, don't you know? Like, get positive. There's lots of books written about this. Like, get positive. Um, you know, and I know, like, some, some of us are optimists. Uh, I, I, I think that I would put myself in the category of, of being an optimist. Uh, sometimes I, I work really, really hard to repackage things to where it's actually good news, even though it's not good news. I, I try to figure out some sort of a positive spin to make it seem like good news. Um, I don't like to hear bad news. A lot of people don't like to hear bad news. They, they don't want to dwell on the negative. I get it. There is a danger. There is a danger in wallowing in self-pity. But that is one of the very reasons why the Psalms, these, these 150 Psalms that we get, why they have been so helpful over the last 3,000 years. Because what the Psalms do is they do not let us avoid the reality of the world. They do not let us avoid the reality of our own situations or the reality of our own hearts. You, You can't hide. If you spend time reading the Psalms, you are not going to be able to hide. They affirm the reality of struggle in the world. They affirm the reality of personal failure. They affirm the reality of disappointment. That as you, if you've lived enough years on this earth, you've probably experienced some really legitimate disappointment. And the Psalms meet us right there. 
It is, it is such a gift. They, they just, they, they pull the covers off and then it's like they just, they like snuggle up right beside you. It's like, I know what it's like to be there. I know what it's like to have a hard time. I know what it's like to be in the pit. I know what it's like to be crying aloud to God, trying to get him to hear me. I know what it's like to lose sleep. I know what it's like to not want to talk to anybody. Now, maybe you're here and your life is really good. Maybe you haven't dealt with a lot of trauma. Uh, maybe you're, you would say, man, I look, man I'm, I'm in a really good place right now. If that's true of you, so if you're in the first category where it's like, no, I can relate to the psalmist. Like, I'm, I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death right now. I'm feeling a lot of angst. I'm going through a really hard thing. Or you're looking and saying, no, my, my situation's not hard. Here's what I want you to realize. Part of what God wants to do in his people is prepare them for hardship. I, I remember hearing a pastor say one time, if you don't have a theology of suffering before you start suffering, it is going to be really hard for you to endure your suffering well. The, the point he was making was, you know, it's, it's like your immune system. You don't try to build up your immune system after you get sick. You, you want to have your immune system strong so that you don't get sick. Or when you do get sick, your body knows what to do in response to those germs. And this pastor's encouragement was, as the people of God, we are most likely going to endure some suffering. So if you're not there yet, it would be a great idea to begin processing it, to begin understanding, like, what, what are you going to do? How are you going to navigate that? And another way to say this would be, until you have a category for suffering in your life, until you have a category for God using suffering to grow you, not to punish you. Until you realize that you can be honest with God about your suffering, then you're not ready to suffer well. And so if you're in the suffering, I think Psalm 77 is a word for you. If you're not in the suffering, this is an invitation to say, boy, I, I want to be ready when it comes. Because all the indications are that it will come. That suffering is part of life on this earth. Well, we face these problems we have a lot of questions. The psalmist does too. And you could say the rawness just keeps on going. In verses 5 and 6, he, he, I'm going to paraphrase this, but basically what he says in verses 5 and 6 is, let, let me think here for a minute. I'm, I'm, I'm in, this, in this really hard thing. I'm in this really big trial. Let me think for a minute. Let, 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 let me remember. Oh, yeah, wow. My, my life is really, really bad. <laughs> like, let, let me think about this. Oh, yeah, it's, 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 it is really, really bad. I mean, verse 5, I consider the days of old, the years long ago, and I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So verses five and six, it's like, let, let, me, let me rewind. Let me think back through my years. Let me think through my situation. Oh yeah, this is, this is, this is as bad as I thought it was. Verse seven, these are the questions he begins asking. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Verse eight, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Second half of verse 8, are his promises at an end for all time? Verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Second half of verse 9, has he in anger shut up his compassion? Is God not being compassionate anymore? In Eugene Peterson's translation of this psalm, uh, the, the, the Bible version called The Message, this is how he translates verses 7 through 9. and It will be on the screen behind me. 
Will the Lord walk off and leave us for good? Will the Lord never smile again? Is his love worn threadbare? Has his salvation promise burned out? Has God forgotten his manners? Has he angrily stomped off and left us? I think I may have said this, but one of, um, one of the reasons why Eugene Peterson ended up writing the message was he started in the Psalms, and he was a pastor of a small church. And as he was counseling with his people and spending time with his people, he, he occasionally ran into people who were going through significant things in their life. And he sat down with these Psalms, and he was like, you know what? I, I don't think that that Psalm gets the Hebrew quite right. And boy, if it got the Hebrew right, it would minister so well to, to Susie's situation. And so the way that the message got started was Eugene Peterson saying, I want to bring these psalms into modern day language, right to the people sitting in my pews, the real stuff they're dealing with, because these psalms deal with the real stuff. And so Eugene Peterson began into, uh, translating individual psalms for specific people. And then it turned into a whole translation of the entire Bible. But, but can't, you, can't you see a pastor's heart here? As he's looking at verses 7 through 9 and working with the original Hebrew, he's, he's putting it in such modern language. He's asking these questions in ways that are faithful to the Hebrew, but that resonate with us. Has his salvation promise burned out? Has God forgotten his manners? Has he angrily stomped off and left us? These are the questions that the psalmist is asking. Maybe you're asking some of those exact same questions. Maybe you ask different questions. But have you been, like, what are they? What are the questions that you ask God when things are not going right in your life? You know, sometimes I, I, I look at the psalms and it's like, I, I know he put many of these together as, as, as poems, as songs. But it makes me think, like, did he keep a journal somehow? And then when he sat down, he like paged back through his journal and looked and was like, boy, look at these thoughts that I wrote down. Look, look, look at where I was. Look at, look at the challenge I was facing. And I know that some of you journal. Some of you, you, you spend time trying to put pen to paper and sort out what's going on on the inside. It's a good practice. When you do that, what are the questions that you ask of God? I mean, aren't you confused sometimes? I am. So were the Israelites. You know, not every psalm was written by David. This psalm wasn't written by David. This is a psalm of Asaph. The, the, the Israelite people were often confused. Think about their story. The God of heaven picked them out. He said, I'm going to do something really unique with you. You are my people. In the book of Numbers, it's like longing for, the, for God's face to shine upon them. And then they go through all of these hard things. I think I can understand why the Israelites were so confused. And the evidence of their confusion is the fact that this is their songbook. These were the songs that they sang. Well, before you conclude that these psalms are just the product of a weird you know, Middle Eastern culture from you know, thousands of years ago, you, you might want to consider that it is much more likely that we are the weird ones. That, that, that our current culture is actually somewhat unique in the history of the world. 
Tim, Tim Keller wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, and he did an interview uh, on, on that book. And this is just a little section of, of an interview, that, that, that uh, some of his comments from, from an interview. And uh, I think it will be on the screen uh, behind us. But this is what he said. Uh, we are more shocked and undone by soft suffering than were our ancestors. Most cultures, unlike our own, expect suffering as inevitable and see it as a means of strengthening and enriching us. Our secular culture, on the other hand, is perhaps the worst in history at helping its members face suffering. Every other culture says that the meaning of life is something beyond this world and life. A couple comments here that aren't on the screen. It may be going to heaven to live with God and your loved ones forever. It might be escaping the cycle of reincarnation in order to enter eternal bliss. It might be escaping the illusion of the world to go into the all-soul of the universe. It might be living a moral, virtuous, honorable life even in the face of defeat and doom. Or it might be living on in your family and your descendants. But in each case, see, not, not exclusively Christian, but in each case, Suffering, though painful, can actually help you reach your life goal and complete your life story. But in our culture, in secular modern culture, the meaning of life is to be free to choose what makes you happy right now in this life. If that's true, suffering destroys that meaning. And so in the secular view, suffering can have no meaning at all. It can't be a chapter in your life story. It's an interruption to your life story. It's just messing it up. Now, can, can you see why it makes no sense to endure? Can you see why, if this is the view of the world that you have, why, why, why suicide rates would be climbing? What is the point of enduring? And if you don't believe me, you, g- just go read. Re- read some Richard Dawkins and listen to how he talks about the meaning of the world. He says it's all meaningless. He says, there's no point to any of this. All of the pain, there's nothing to it. It's all an interruption. There's no value in it. We fall prey to this. One of the ways is that we often conclude that since we can't find a reason for our suffering, then there must not be one. But what if that conclusion is wrong? What if even though you can't find a good reason for your suffering, there still could be one? One that you can't figure out. That seems to be what God is telling us on the pages of the Bible. Well, what does the psalmist do with all of these questions? He tells a story. Verses 10 and 11 says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord, yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Now, you might be saying, well, I think he already said that. Look, Matt, look at, look, at verse, look at verse 5. I consider the days of old, the years, of, the years long ago. Like, why is, this isn't news. Like, this is what he's been doing. Well, in verses 5 through 9, it, it appears that they are a reflection of his current circumstances in comparison to the good old days. He, when, when in verse 5, when he says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago, it appears that he's talking about his own life. 
And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm 45, and it's like the, if I was writing a song, I'd be like, man, I look back when I was 25, and life was so good. It was so simple. I didn't have all these bills. I didn't have, you know, four kids that are getting ready to go to college and four daughters where in our stinking culture, we're supposed to pay for the wedding. Like, you know, I, I didn't have all these problems. You know, it's like he, he's looking at his own life, and he's saying, I, I don't like how it is now. It looks to me like the good old days were good and God has quit on me now. But what if there's a story unfolding that is so much bigger than the psalmist experience over the last weeks, over the last months, over the last years, even over the course of his entire life? What if there's a bigger story? What if he went with a wider lens? In verse 11, he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. If, if you have your Bible open, you, you, might, you might notice that in verse 11, uh, Lord, it should be all capitals, capital L-O-R-D. If you jump back up to verse 2, he uses the word Lord. It's not all capitals. In verse 2, he's using a relatively generic term for the Lord. But when he gets to verse 11, he says, here's what I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember Yahweh. I'm going to remember God in this incredibly specific way. This name that he released that is him, Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God. That's what I'm going to rehearse. And guess what? The covenant-keeping God, his story is a lot longer than mine. It's a lot longer than the decades that I get on this earth. In verse 15, he starts to recount how God has so faithfully rescued his people. So in verse 11 and 12, he talks about pondering, remembering. Get down to verse 15. He says, You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So he starts to say, you're this this redeemer. You've been about this work of redemption. In verse 16, in verse 17, he points to creation. Verses 16 and 17 sound very, very much like Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Most scholars associate what he says in 16 and 17 to relate to the creation story, the creation narrative in Genesis 1. And so it's like, not just my life, not just when I was 25, not just before I had bills, like the creation of the world. What you did in the creation of the world, like you're the creator. And then he turns his attention to the Exodus, to to the rescue through the waters, through the sea. That, that, that's an allusion to, to the rescue of, from slavery in Egypt. That God did not only create the world, but then God rescued his people out of slavery in this powerful nation, Egypt. Miraculously split the Red Sea in half. They had no business surviving that, but God carried them through it. They get through the Red Sea and what ends up happening? They end up out in the, in the, in the, uh, in the desert, in the wilderness. And in verse 20, that's, that's the reference. Moses and Aaron, like a flock. God God carried his people. He directed his people through the wilderness, wandering all the way to the promised land. The psalmist says, I'm I'm going to look through a different lens. I'm going to look through a bigger lens. Yahweh, redeemer, creator, rescuer, sustainer. That's the story. That's how I want to orient myself. And man, if you know anything about the Jewish people, these stories are soaked into their bones. 
These are soaked into the bones of the Jewish people. They read them. They memorized them. They sang them. They had a bunch of parties every year to remember these things. They they did not want to forget God as redeemer, creator, rescuer, sustainer. The Jewish people were constantly looking back in order, though. I won't want you to miss this. They're looking back in order to move forward. They're looking back in order to reorient themselves to the God who is their God so that they know how to position themselves in this day and how to look to the future. They looked back as a resource to stay faithful, to keep seeking, to have confidence in the future. Well, these deeds of Yahweh, they're kept, right? I mean, we, we believe in something called progressive revelation, that these Psalms were written 3,000 years ago, but God in his grace was not done sharing things with us. More was written. And we have these, these books, that the, the, the collection of them is called the New Testament. And we find the story of Jesus and the story of the church. And as we read about Jesus and then what God did through his church, we realize that all of these deeds of Yahweh, Yahweh as redeemer, creator, as, as sustainer, as, we, as you look at all of these deeds of Yahweh, they are kept and then amplified in the Christian story. Why? How? Because of Christ. What the New Testament tells us is that all of this stuff in the Old Testament was like signposts. It was like, it was pointing us forward to the better solution to Christ as the main character, as the climax of the story. Maybe you could say it this way. Until Jesus is revealed in the story, you don't have the story. Everything else is just a shadow. It's just a signpost. It's historical It happened, but it was pointing us forward to something better. Take the rescue from Egypt that the psalmist mentions. In the New Testament, the New Testament writers see the rescue of the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. That is a historical event. The writers of the New Testament see that, but they see it as a signpost. They see it as a precursor to Christ rescuing his people out of the slavery of sin. That this historic exodus that we read about in the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus' ultimate exodus of people out of sin. And the the New Testament is constantly doing that with the Old Testament. Jesus brings it all into focus. I I have a commentary in my office, and it is literally 1,200 pages. And it is a commentary on the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. And it is recounting every single time on the pages of the New Testament that an Old Testament allusion or quote is made. And it happens hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. The New Testament writers are constantly looking back at the Old Testament and saying, see, see, he came. The the Messiah that Israel thought was just coming for them, he came and it's way better than any of us thought. He brings the story to fulfillment. He's the main character. He's the climax. Until you have him, you don't have the story. Well, that's true. But one of the greatest challenges that we actually have right now, in the last maybe couple generations, is how often we think of the gospel story as a half story. See, Israel's story was unfolding. 
And this writer of the Psalms lived like 3,000 years ago. And so there was a lot yet to happen. We live after the coming of Christ. We live after the story of the gospel. And yet we still only have a partial story, a half story. A surprising number of Christians have Jesus in the story, but it's not the whole story. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, the first person that I heard talk about this is a guy named Gabe Lyons. And he, he talks about it as like a truncated gospel. So here, here's the half story. Thinking about the gospel just in terms of sinners who need saved. This has been a pretty dominant way of thinking about the gospel story over the last few generations. If you think of door-to-door evangelism, Maybe you're familiar with that, but that's where people that you have never met knocked on your front door and said, I want to tell you all about Jesus, and then they offered to let you pray and and, and trust Christ right there on your front step. Uh, That was a big deal uh, over the last uh, maybe 50 years ago or so. And often what that story focused on was, you're a sinner, but Jesus will save you. Well, that's not wrong. That's true. The fall is the reality of of, of mankind being sinners and redemption is the promise that Jesus will save us. It's not wrong. It's just woefully incomplete. It is half the story. It's only two out of four chapters. It lacks any anchoring in our understanding of the world. It, like the psalmist, it has too narrow of a lens. So what is the whole story? Well, take a look. Here's the full story. The full story adds a chapter before and after. It provides the why to the severity of sin and our need for a savior. It provides a why to enduring, that there's a promise and a confidence in what's coming. So so maybe think about it like this. Yes, we are sinners who need a savior. But do you see how much more sense it makes when you realize God's creation design? When you realize that first chapter, that the way that God made the world was absolutely perfect, that when God got done creating, he looked at it and he said, it's all good. This is all good. And mankind walked in perfect harmony with God, perfect relationship with God. That was the condition of things. Well, what happened? Sin happened. Sin came in and sin vandalized God's good shalom. Sin came in and distorted everything. Sin broke the world. And so, yes, we are sinners who need a savior. But do you realize what the original condition was and how good it was? Boy, that makes you hate sin all the more. Well, you say, okay, so we get redeemed from that. But like saved for what? Man, saved for restoration, Here's a way to think about this. When Jesus saves you, when you put your faith in Jesus and he makes your heart go from dead to alive, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, he restores your heart to God's original creation design. You are back in right relationship with him. But when we understand the whole story, guess what we realize? That what God did in my heart is just one of the ways in which God is at work making the whole world right. That the promises in this final chapter are that God is going to, in his power and in his sovereign plan, Jesus is going to return to this earth. And when he does, he is going to make all things new. That Jesus is coming back 
and he is going to wipe away all sin. He's going to wipe away every tear, all sickness, all brokenness. He's going to wipe the world clean. He's going to make it right again. This is not a truncated gospel. This is the whole gospel. This this is the whole news. And as we allow this full story to inform the way that we see the world, it has some powerful things to offer us in regard to our orientation. Why do I do what I do? Why is the gospel news such good news? Well, the whole story invites us in. Many people only know a half story. But the full story, the full gospel, it stirs our hearts. It cultivates our trust. This God is at work in the world. And it's not just some little idea of like you've got sin and somebody can fix it. No, it's way bigger and richer than that. There's a God who created this place perfectly. Sin destroyed it. Jesus is rescuing and he's going to make all things new. The psalmist was trying to think about a bigger story. And those are no joke. What the psalmist points to are incredible creation, the rescue out of Egypt, sustaining them in the desert. These are incredible things. But the psalmist did not have all the details yet. We do. We do. Do you see it? Can you taste it? Man, the Bible is inviting us to actually follow the same rhythms of the psalmist. You might be lost in your own story. You, you, you might look in the mirror and say, man, it was so good two years ago. It was so good 10 years ago. The, 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 the scriptures are inviting us to, 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 to remember, to, to, to have a wider lens, and then to take that story that God is at work in the world, the way that he's at work in the world, to remember and to use those memories as fuel for the present and as hope for the future. An invitation to realize that you can actually trust him, that he's at work in the world, that he hasn't left this place spinning out of control, that he's worth seeking after. He's that good. This is what walking with God is. Looking back, looking around, looking future. God knows we can't fully grasp the future. He knows that we can't understand what's around the next corner. He knows we often can't even grasp the current, the present. He knows that when we look in the rearview mirror, we got a lot of questions about the past. But he's showing us that the story is better than we thought, and we get to be part of it. Let's pray. God, the word gospel means good news. And boy, it is just, it makes my heart so happy that it really is that good. That this this gospel news that was unfolding as the psalmist wrote, that has now been brought to full light to where here we are in the year 2021 and we we can rehearse it together. We We can sing it together. We can remind each other of this whole story. God, would you allow it to stir in our hearts this this great confidence that you're at work in the world in a way that we often can't understand, but we can trust. That this story that is unfolding still is going to end with a world remade, with all things new. God, what good news this is. Would you encourage our hearts today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.